the leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion. The Supreme Court. The court that dark money built. Breaking news at the Supreme Court. The landmark Roe v. Wade case. A woman's constitutional right to an abortion. My body, my choice. And Leonard Leo, who really is responsible for helping Trump fill the Supreme Court. A Supreme Court decision with dramatic consequences. The justices ruling five to four. You look at the decisions like Shelby County that attacks voting rights, and then you look at the dark money cases like Citizens United. It's not just us. The court is not in order. This is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, and welcome to Making the Case. As uh, is frequently the case, I'm joined by my compadre from the House side, Hank Johnson, Democrat representative from Georgia's 4th District, who is the uh, court's subcommittee chairman on House Judiciary, to match me being the court subcommittee chairman on Senate Judiciary. And we have the great pleasure of being joined by Senator Elizabeth Warren, who, as everybody knows, is a Democrat from Massachusetts. And she originally proposed a new agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, back in 2007 while she was a law professor. Now she's in the Senate. The uh, CFPB has become real, and it has provoked considerable litigative interest by the right wing and corporate powers. So we're looking at some cases in this coming term of the Supreme Court. So why don't we lead off by you, Elizabeth, telling us what the CFPB is all about. Okay. Set the stage. All right. Let's set the stage. All right. So go back to all of the 20th century and uh, first decade of the 21st century and a little beyond. Consumer credit's a big part of what happens in people's lives. And it matters what you end up paying for a home, for a credit card, for a car, for all kinds of things. And the deal is the United States actually has a lot of laws and had a lot of laws back then to protect people from getting cheated. Um, that's a pretty good deal. The problem was those laws were scattered among more than half a dozen different agencies. They were nobody's first job. And as a result, they were nobody's job, period. And as a result, the banks and the other kinds of lenders could just pretty much run crazy. And we watch that when we watch credit card contracts go from a page and a half long to 35 and a half pages. And believe me, the extra 34 pages were not to help consumers. Um, and it hit really big with the mortgages in the early 2000s, where some of these mortgage lenders had figured out they could go into largely black communities and they could go to people who already owned homes, sell them these terrible mortgages, lie about what was in them and what they would do, and then two years later, be able to repossess those homes, take those homes away from people. Once they perfected it, they took it nationwide. They cost, their different estimates, somewhere between 6 and 10 million people, their homes, and crashed our economy and pretty much crashed the worldwide economy. So part of what came out of that is I'd had this idea for an agency, and the idea behind it was to say, look, we're going to gather up all those laws, we're going to put them with one agency, and that agency will have the resources, it'll develop the expertise, it will have the responsibility, and we can hold it accountable for being the cop on the beat to keep American consumers from getting cheated. 
And President Obama and all the negotiations back and forth over what was going to become Dodd-Frank, the financial laws that came out of the crash, he said, I am going to have that agency as part of our package. And he did. And it's now the law. And here comes the best part. It works. And how do we know it works? Because since that agency's been in place, it's forced giant banks to return more than $17 billion, that's with a B, write out checks and actually send them back to consumers who got cheated. In addition to that, it handles about 3,000 complaints every single day. So if you're listening to this podcast and you are still just mattering a heck over the fact that you got dinged for $35 on some credit card deal or by your bank and you don't think that's right or more money than that, go to cfpb.gov. You can fill out a complaint form and you've got a pretty good chance you will get your complaint resolved to your satisfaction. That's government that works. And of course, certain people didn't love it. Oh, we know that the agency is being effective because of the opposition that it has generated. I mean, everybody is coming after the CFPB because it protects consumers from the overreach by the financial services industry in all of its many tentacles into the pocketbooks and pockets of everyday Americans. And if we don't have that protection, then we all suffer because we see what happened with the Wall Street meltdown, with the fact that these mortgages that were worthless pretty much because they were non-performing. People stopped paying on those predatory loans that had been packaged into securities, which were then sold on Wall Street, bringing back um, profits of 10, 12 percent. And so that whole thing came crashing down, and we don't want history to repeat itself. And so that's why this idea, Senator, that you had uh, to create this agency has been such a boon to consumers and has actually protected our economy up to this point. But it is beleaguered with uh, attacks from special interest groups. Now the biggest one is the threat posed by the payday loan industry, which is represented by a lobbying outfit that is suing this agency, the CFPB. And uh, now the United States Supreme Court has this case in its bosom. That's why it was so important for you to uh, submit a brief in that case that's pending before the Supreme Court, documenting some of the hidden corporate connections between the parties attacking the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. What's at stake in that case, and uh, what did your brief expound upon? The original case was a challenge to whether the CFPB was constitutional. And obviously the groups that Senator Warren has pointed out as despising the CFPB and its restrictions on their profiteering don't necessarily want to be caught attacking the CFPB because it's done good work. It's returned the 17 billion. People like it. So they've got to put their hand into various gloves and send those gloved hands into the Supreme Court where the justices that the Federalist Society chose for President Trump, they hope, will deliver a result that they couldn't get through Congress because the CFPB is too popular and that they really 
couldn't get publicly if they had to put their names on it because people would say to Bank of America or Wells Fargo, what's up with that? So instead, they turned up in that case through front groups. And they often do this, as we've talked about in this podcast. They usually do it like 10 or 12. And sure enough, in the it was called the SELA law case, they came in in a little flotilla of 11 front groups. And in my own amicus brief, I added an appendix that showed the common funding of the 11 front groups. Every single one of the 11 front groups was funded through a group called Donors Trust. Mm. Donors Trust provides no service. It makes no product. It has no consumers, except that it does one thing. It launders the identity off of donations. So Big Ugly Bank gives a million dollars to Donors Trust and says, give it to the Pacific Legal Foundation. And Pacific Legal Foundation reports that it got a million dollars from Donors Trust. And nobody knows who is the hand in the glove. In this case, there were 11 of those. And Donors Trust transited big donations into every single one. Bradley Foundation managed to hit uh, 8 out of 11. The conservative far-right SCAFE Foundation hit 6 out of 11. There's a whole network of identity laundering front groups through which corporate America and the far right tell the justices they put on the court what it is that they want them to do. So calling out that whole mess is really important. So what we did in that brief was to blow the whistle on all of that scheme. And I don't know if it helped set them back or not, but uh, actually they got a lot less than they had hoped for in that decision. So they went back to work. I see. You have been at these dark money groups that fund these amicus briefs upon which the United States Supreme Court follows the logic of and the game plan of for far too long. And so I'm glad that you are dead on, Senator Warren, about this case that is now pending before this court, which has been so corrupted by dark moneyed interests. Can you tell us about that case and what the consequences would be if the Supreme Court rules in favor of that lobbying group, which represents payday lenders? Yeah. So let's start with payday lenders. Not everybody who's listening to us may be entirely familiar with payday lenders. So these are, these are the outfits that set up in mostly very modest neighborhoods, working class neighborhoods. And they offer, if you're a little short, to lend you money for two weeks at what are often stunning rates of interest. But okay, they make a little money doing that. But here's their big hope. At the end of two weeks, you won't be able to pay it back 100% in full because they won't take any partial payment, only 100% in full. So you borrow $250. If you've got 240 nope, they won't take it. But they'll roll you over for two more weeks. It's just that it's going to cost you money to roll over. And where they make their big money is they get a group of people who roll over two weeks after two weeks after two weeks, so that it is not uncommon for the subset that come to the payday lenders to have paid for years on a loan. Mm. We'd run into people who, on a $250 loan, have paid week after week after week for a year, for two years, for three years, and guess how much they owe? They still owe $250. Interest rates, 
often clock in at 200%, 300 300%, 400%, 1,000%. So needless to say, the CFPB is ready to go after these guys. They did their homework, their research, and they're going to put some restrictions on them. And this industry, fight back, fight back, fight back. This case in the United States Supreme Court is like their last Hail Mary because fight back, fight back, fight back, but they lost, lost, lost. But now they're in Supreme Court. So here's their argument in the Supreme Court. They said, whoa, we went back and looked at this consumer agency, and we noticed that the consumer agency is not funded through Congress and the appropriations process. It is funded through ultimately kind of bank fees. Which and Congress said. Which Congress told them to be yeah, funded that yeah. way, right? Said, And they said, that's got to be unconstitutional. Now, there are two problems with that. The first one is there's nothing in the Constitution that says Congress can't tell you to get your funding through fees. But the second thing is CFPB is funded exactly the same way that the Federal Reserve Bank is funded. Oh, and the Office of the Controller of the Currency. Oh, and the FDIC and the credit union uh, uh, regulator. In other words, just dating back to the very first banking regulator, 1863, Congress has always said banking regulators are going to be regulated not through appropriations. Why? Because we don't want them as part of this smarmy political process. We recognize banks have lots of power. So we're going to put them outside the appropriations process, and we're going to say, you guys do this through banking fees, get what you need. And obviously, if Congress doesn't like it, if they think somebody's out of line, they can always change the law and change how they do it. But that's how Congress has set it up, always set it up that way. And here comes the best part. It's not just banking regulators that are funded that way. Social Security and Medicare are funded outside the appropriations process. They're funded through the money you pay into Social Security and Medicare. So what we've got right now in this case in the Supreme Court, this turns out to be a big, big case, is that this group is coming in and saying, declare the CFPB unconstitutional, and they run the risk of declaring the entire banking regulatory system unconstitutional and Social Security and Medicare while they're at it. Now, maybe their intent is just to slice off the CFPB, right, because it does cost these banks a lot of money. Then again, for guys who really don't like government, for guys who really don't like paying taxes, for guys who really think that a government on the side of the people is a threat to their power and their vision of America— you know, I don't know how they feel about that kind of expanded view of what the Supreme Court could end up doing here. But all in all, this is a big deal. So your description of the ordinary American who got stuck owing $250 year after year, paying interest on it, but never being able to pay the principal back, uh, calls to mind our recent Finance Committee investigation, which showed that Clarence Thomas borrowed $250,000 and paid only interest year after year after year. And then the wealthy friend who loaned him the $250,000 apparently didn't require that the $250,000 principal ever be repaid. 
So there seems to be a big difference between the two. But when you're talking about 250 and 250,000, there's a weird symmetry between yeah. the two. Yeah. So all of us signed off with over 100 other colleagues on a brief to the Supreme Court in this question. Senator Warren, tell us a little bit about the argument back. So the argument back from the payday lenders is basically they're just arguing this whole thing is unconstitutional. They're all together. And it's one more bite at we can't let our agencies work. We can't let our government work. And that's what they're trying to do here. It's a bunch of moneyed interests. And people who, by the way, have an investment in these payday lender. You know, this may sound like small potatoes, you know, like and that sometimes happens in the Supreme Court. You end up with a little tiny case that somehow makes it all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Payday lending is big dollar business. This is billions of dollars over time that changes hands that these people suck out of the pockets of the working poor. That's who ultimately gets tangled up with the payday lenders and ends up paying. And their view, the, the view of the plaintiffs in this case, is not only should they be able to continue to do what they've been doing all along, that the government has no right to look over their shoulder, that there is no application of federal law that should restrain them even in the slightest. And if part of the consequence of that is to declare the CFPB unconstitutional and just throw the whole dang thing out the window, so the mortgage rules go out the window and the credit card rules go out the window, then from their point of view, huh, the rich folks, the, the handful of investors in this, the multi-billionaires, they're better off and they kind of like that outcome. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Mm. And the system stays rigged. That's right. Senator Whitehouse, would you like to tell the audience about the work that you and I have partnered on to get the judiciary to clean up this mess of billionaire and corporate front groups trying to weaponize the court in cases such as this? Uh, we've been pushing for a better rule in the Supreme Court about disclosing who is behind a brief. The way the Supreme Court lets it work right now is that the only funding that has to be disclosed is who actually paid for the binding and the printing and the distribution of the brief, which is a five to $10,000 operation. So if you're one of these phony front groups and you've got five or $10,000 in your bank account, you just pay for it out of your own funds. I say that in quotes. In the meantime, the company or the special interest that gave you a million dollars to prepare the brief, you never mention their name. Nobody has any idea that they were in the case because they weren't involved directly in the filing of the brief. I think that's a terrible way to read the rule. And we challenged the Supreme Court on it repeatedly. And Chief Justice Roberts, to his credit, finally said, OK, enough. Let's send this to the judicial conference and let the judicial conference take a look at this. Now, the judicial conference is senior judges. It's the circuit judge chiefs. They've been around a long time. Many of them predate the Federalist Society meddling in judicial appointments. And many of them would like to know who's behind a brief in their courtroom. One of them, Judge Patricia Millett, said, it's actually pretty important that we know who the real power is behind the throne when these briefs come into our courtroom. So the judicial conference in its last meeting got a report from the relevant committee that said, 
we're going to fix the rule. We are going to fix the rule. So it's going to take some work. And I don't think they're fully aware of the schemes that these sneaky billionaires get up to. So Representative Johnson and I wrote a letter to the chief justice and to the judges who are handling this for the judicial conference saying, here are two things you got to look out for. One, if you set a number like 25 percent of the funding, you've got to make sure that if groups have structured their funding so that they've all given 20 percent and it's all part of a common scheme, you can figure that out. And uh, Senator Warren, you know a little bit about structuring because structuring is a very regular money laundering banking problem. Bingo. Bingo. Drug dealers like to structure deposits. You give $9,000 and $900 deposits so you never have to report. Common criminal activity. $10,000. Exactly. They need to make sure that the disclosure isn't just of who the money went through last on its way to the amicus briefer. You got to go and look back where it actually began, the way we did with our beneficial ownership statute, the way we did with the Disclose Act. You chase back through the screens until you find the real donor. So I'm hoping that the uh, judicial conference will pay attention, that we'll have a real rule, and that this mischief that we've seen in the Supreme Court of these flotillas of front groups, commonly directed, orchestrated, coordinated, coming in and pretending that there are all these independent think tanks, uh, we can blow up at least that part of the uh, court capture scheme. So... Representative Johnson, you're a part of this. Love to hear your thoughts on it as well. Thank you for joining me in that letter. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Senator Whitehouse, I'm proud to have introduced the Supreme Court Ethics Recusal and Transparency Act. That is your brainchild. You've introduced it in the Senate. I introduced it in the House. It now has, I I believe, 96 uh, co-sponsors in the House. Bravo. It is gaining in popularity. The public understands that um, in order for there to be accountability, you have to have some disclosures and you have to have a mechanism to force compliance with any disclosure regime that is put in place. And so that CERT Act also governs the issue of amicus briefs in the Supreme Court. And um, once we pass that legislation, we will have gone a long way towards bringing the kinds of accountability that uh, the court sorely needs, our third branch of government, which the legislative branch is charged with protecting and enabling. But when we shirk our responsibilities by not being attentive to our responsibilities. Then we cede that to private groups like Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society, which have for the last uh, 40 plus years been on a crusade to construct a Supreme Court that suits the business interests at the expense of the ordinary working people and people trying to achieve the American dream uh, in this country. So I appreciate being able to work with you and uh, Senator Warren. I remember sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office. It was a very small group, and you came in to talk about your brainchild. This was before you <laughs> became was. a senator, yeah. and uh, I can't believe I've been in the House long enough to say that I remember <laughs> 12 years ago when you were not a senator. That's it was longer right. than 12 years. That's right. But your baby has grown up. 
mm-hmm. and uh, is walking around. It's been lifting weights. Mm-hmm. It's getting stronger. Attracting enemies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Doing its cardio and everything. You know, but it does give me a chance to say how grateful I am to you for the early support for this agency when people thought, ah, we'll never get anything like that. But how many people said, no, this is the right thing to do. But now how important it is and how grateful I am to you and to Senator Whitehouse, we got to protect it. For people who don't live around this place here in Washington, it's easy to think we passed a law, we fixed that problem, let's move on. But the ability of the United States Supreme Court to come in and say, yeah, duly elected representatives, they wrote this thing, it's operating the way it should be, it's, it's, it's helping people. We're not having giant financial crashes. We're not having family-level crashes because of the help that it has provided. It's a cop on the beat. And yet, this is where you started it, Sheldon. The idea, they can't repeal this agency out in the full light of day. They can't get that through Congress. And in fact, they don't even want to they keep trying. They can't even write briefs out in the full light of <laughs> that's day. That's right. And that's the deal. So they think they can go over to the United States Supreme Court and those guys, right, they can do this in effect kind of undercover and they can accomplish things they could never accomplish through the legislative branch. They could never accomplish from people who will be directly responsible to the voters. And so I just got to say on this, I am so grateful to you for trying to clean up what's happening over at the Supreme Court because the ultimate effect is things like this, trying to keep an agency up and functional that keeps people from getting cheated, that provides redress when somebody has scammed them out of some money. We can't let the court take that away. And thank you for all you're doing. Well, I'm, there is nobody in Congress who fights harder against corporate power and secret corporate power than Senator Warren. So it's been great to have her on our podcast with Representative Johnson and myself. And I'll just close with a simple observation that these flotillas of front groups, when they appear in the Supreme Court, you can predict with near exact perfection how the Supreme Court will rule. And if you try cases in court, if you can show that 70 times the company did this and zero times it did the other, that pattern evidence is very, very convincing. And the pattern evidence of what these front groups have done, or more likely what the billionaire and corporate interests behind them have done, plays out in regular people's lives all the time in decisions that take away their rights and take away their protections. So with that, thank you, Senator Warren. Thank you, Representative Johnson. This has been a wonderful making the case. Thank you.